Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. If you, um, if you have your Bibles, Judges chapter 4 is where we're going to be going. I do want to, um, to recognize that a lot of our college students are back this weekend. Um, you'll hear us. Uh, y'all listen. What you need to know, college students, is that we love you. We are a better church when you are here with us, and we're grateful to have you here for sure. Um, next weekend, because you guys are the ones that were really proactive, because I know moving weekend was like, this weekend, and y'all got here. Next weekend, we have a lunch for you after service, because what you will find, freshmen, is it a free meal? You get it where you can get it, all right? Um, so we'll have that next weekend, and we're just, uh, we love you guys. We are, um, we're in week three in a series. We're going through the book of Judges. Uh, so if you're new with us, here's the quick recap, all right? The people of God, God's people, keep falling into what we've called the cycle of sin, where they forget the salvation that God had brought them, so they start to wander off and kind of disobey God. They go after the things that they want, that they think will satisfy them, that they think will help them. It always leads to their disaster. Usually wound up, um, they're they're winding up being enslaved to a foreign nation, and so they're stuck, and after some time, they realize they're never going to get out of this mess on their own, and so they start crying out to God. And then God sends them, happens, and we're going to see it 12 times over the book, God sends a deliverer that the book calls a judge. That's why it's the book of Judges. So God sends a deliverer, and they're freed from their oppression and back reunited with the Lord. But here's why I love, um, I think why I love this book. You get these fantastic stories of God's deliverance. I mean, they're, they are, as my 10-year-old says, they're epic, right? Epic stories. But then, unlike a Hollywood movie where it just kind of you ride off into the sunset, or you have to wait on part two of Infinity Wars to come out, and you figure out how it all works out. But at the end of it, you write off into the sunset. Not here. Here, the author is kind enough to remind us that these are real people dealing with real life. And so what you see is they get delivered, and then they wake up the next day. And then they wake up the next day, then the next day, and then even weeks, months, years start to go by between the time where they experienced an incredible move of God and what present day is, and their deliverance start to, starts to become kind of a distant, fading memory. It loses its luster. It loses its impact on their lives. So listen, that's why they start going back into the cycle of sin. It's because they start drifting back into old, familiar struggles because God's deliverance for them has become a distant memory of days past. And even though they had been down the road of these same struggles before, And even though they knew that the sins that they were about to get into, the disobedience they were about to get into, they knew that it would be bad for them. They knew it would bring about their destruction. They still went there anyways. Does that connect with any of y'all in here this morning? Y'all, I know 
I know it does for me. I was thinking about this week. I, transparent moment, I struggle to believe in the power and the deliverance of God like a pastor should. All right, I've told you this before. I am a, there are glass half full people. There are glass half empty people. That's optimists and pessimists. I am a glass half empty. There's a hole in the bottom. The water's leaking out and everything's gonna go just to the ends of the world, terrible way in like five minutes. That's me, all right? I struggle with that. And here's the thing though. Whenever things start to get a little shaky, like I'm like, oh, things aren't going to work out perfectly for Mercy Church, like maybe we'll actually encounter some obstacles, I start to lose it. I start to think it's all falling apart, right? In fact, we had an elder meeting the other day, and I said something to that effect. It was kind of like me just being scared, and I started to try and figure out a way that I can save it in my own power. And one of our elders goes, here comes glass half empty Spence again. How long is he going to be with us in this meeting? And I was like, he's right. Absolutely called me right when I needed to be. I know that God is powerful. I know that my role is to believe in him. I have experienced God's provision. I've experienced it in my life. I've watched him save several of you. I've watched the movement that he's doing here, yet still, when it seems like he's silent for just a little bit, right back I go into that old familiar pattern. You ever been there? For some of y'all, it's struggle with a substance that's familiar. It's a familiar escape. For some of you, that struggle has a name, like Mike or Janice or something like that. You keep finding yourself back with the person that you know is no good for you. For some of you, it's doubt, it's fear, it's anxiety. How did I get here again? If that's ever been you, I believe that what we're going through today, and really this whole series, is specifically for you. The great, listen to me, the great news of the book of Judges is that even when you find yourself back there again for the 10th time, 11th time, 12th time, 100th time, even when you had that especially dark period where you just binge and you run away into your sin, the message of the book of Judges to you is that our God is strong enough to deliver you even then, even then when you go. His grace is more powerful than even your best attempts to run away from him. That's the great news that's going to come in this book. And listen, the more you learn to lean into that, the more you're going to start learning about yourself, you're going to start learning about how you slip into that cycle of sin, and you're going to see from God's word how he can break that cycle through the power of resting in his redemptive love for you. One of the recurring ideas today is going to be that we're not playing games in church. We're not. You need real hope today because you got real life waiting on you when you leave here, and I believe God offers real power to us. The deeper we dive into his love, the more we unlock that power and that unshake, listen, unshakable hope will start to fill our souls. Man, that, that is power for life. That's where we're going today. So here's what we're going to do. Deliverance is going to come again in this story in Judges 4, just like it did last week from a pretty unsuspecting place. I'm going to walk through this story. I'm going to show you what God wants us to walk away with kind of after that. Actually, be kind of some battle lessons because this is a real battle that's about to go down here, okay? So we're going to be in Judges chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1. I'm not going to hit every verse. I'm going to hit kind of the, the highlights and miss some of those filler verses, but we're just going to walk through the story. Here we go. Judges chapter 4, verse 1. The Israelites again, again, just like me and you, the people that God had delivered, Again, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ahud had died. Ahud was our deliverer from last week. Why is this important? They had just been saved in a really miraculous way by Ahud. But then 
some days passed, right? Their deliverer dies. That's like a shaky moment for them. Like the guy that represents God's salvation, he's gone now. They start to slip into a place where they're not sure if God is still there. And when things seem a little shaky, it's easy to go back to that familiar place of escape, right? That you know is not good for you. You know it's running from the Lord, but it's familiar, and so you go there. Um, I was actually talking with, a lot of times, Courtney, my wife, is like my editor on these sermons a lot of times, and she brought up to me um, this week, she said, here's what you ought to tell them, just how this has worked in her life. Uh, You know, our first couple of years here in Charlotte, we've been here three years, our first couple of years, she said, um, she said she would escape whenever things got shaky, she felt like she she was maybe far from God, whatever, things were bad, she said, my escape is Target and (laughs) Chick-fil-A. Why? Because we had that in Durham. It's familiar, right? Even the way it's laid out, the menu, everything, like, and especially bad day, you're going to hit those as a combo, right? You're going to go get that number one, then off to Target you go, right? Um, Listen, she escaped from her problems because they were there, specifically, because that was a familiar form of escape for her. Terrible on the budget, right? And listen, impulse shopping and impulse eating is not problem solving, it's problem escaping, right? We all do that with whatever your escape is, whatever that sin you keep going back to, you go back there because it is familiar, and y'all, it is the familiar sins that will have the tightest grip on us every time. Verse two, so the Lord sold them to King Jabin of Canaan. Now, Simple thing here, sold them, Lord handed them over because they disobeyed, that led to their disaster. And he reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth of the nations. Then the Israelites, so they're down. Again, if you've been with us, the cycle's going. Now they're in this spot of helplessness. The Israelites cried out to the Lord. Why? Because Jabin had 900 iron chariots. If y'all remember from week one, the iron chariots were the things that the, the enemy had. They were too big, too scary. So Israel said, we ain't going up against them, but it'll be okay. They'll stay far away from us. And now the people that they didn't bother to sin, they didn't bother to root out, has now come back to enslave them and had harshly oppressed them for 20 years. Verse four, Deborah, a prophetess and the wife of Lapidoth. She was judging Israel at this time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah, because it's her tree. But I don't know. So I, that's how you know the Bible is like not a fairy tale. A little random details like this. Between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to settle disputes. Y'all, this is our only female judge that we get in the book of Judges. I love the details the author offers. She was married. Other judges might have been married, but the Bible wants us to know that she is, yet being married did not mean that she couldn't be the judge, like her husband had to be the judge instead or something. No, God called her. And men, this guy didn't seem to have a problem being married to a woman who was a lot more visible than he was. She was wise. She's the only judge that we get that isn't primarily a military hero, though she is in her own right, a good military strategist. We'll see that. But the Lord wants to show us this woman who is judging at the time. Verse six, she summons Barak. If Jabin has Sisera, so Jabin king, Sisera general, Deborah has Barak, her general. Hasn't the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go, deploy the troops on Mount Tabor, 
and take with you 10,000 men from the Naphtalites and the Zebulonites. Then I will lure Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, his chariots and his infantry, and I will hand him over to you. Hadn't God told you this, Barak? Y'all, this is big. The rest of this story that we're going to read is built around this command. Go down the mountain. That's what you're called to do. Into, you're going at an army that is way bigger than you. Go down the mountain. So verse 8, Barak says to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, uh-uh, I'm not going. Now Deborah, ready for a good adventure, she replies, I will gladly go with you. But you will receive no honor on the road you're about to take because the Lord will sell Sisera to a woman. Now let me give you a little aside on faith here. We're going to get into it later, but I think this exchange is an incredible look into what faith is and how it, how it works. Barack, Barack often gets kind of, he kind of gets dissed in a lot of commentaries and stuff as if his saying, if you won't go with me, I won't go comment is cowardice. But if you look at the rest of his character throughout the book, that just doesn't fit. Instead, it seems Barack is recognizing here that there is a godly woman who speaks God's words to the people. She's the judge. Why wouldn't he want her with him when he's going on assignment that it, from the assignment that's been given by the Lord? It reminds me of Exodus 33. Exodus 33, God tells Moses, hey, you get to go into the promised land. Finally, I know you've been wandering around for a while in the wilderness and all the other nations outside of the wilderness have been kind of laughing at you guys. You're just wandering like fools in the wilderness. So now I'm going to let you go into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. You'll finally be able to take it, but I'm not going to go. I'm just going to send you. And Moses says, nope. No, 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 no. We'll take the humiliation. We'll take the embarrassment. We'll take living the way we've been living as long as you're with us. I'm not going anywhere that you don't go, Lord, if you're not with us. And that seems to be the spirit in which Jabin is talking here, not unless you go with me. So Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. 10,000 men followed him, just like the Lord said, by the way. Deborah also went with him. It was reported back to Sisera, the other general, that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So what did Sisera do? He summoned the whole fleet all 900 chariots, iron chariots, all the troops who were with him. And Deborah said to Barak, and this is the verse, man, that I've just been sitting on as I've been prepping for this morning. Go. This is the day the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. And look at this little, hasn't the Lord gone before you? I need you to hear God saying, go, Mercy Church. Because he has told us to go. Here, today, Jesus has given us a task to get the gospel to the world. And if you remember at the end of Matthew 28, he said, I will be with you always. What you're about to see in this text, in this story, is an unmistakable act of God. And what you and I need to see is that the same presence that was with Israel's army and the same power that's going to subdue the enemy is the same presence that is with Mercy Church and that same power is available to us to accomplish the mission that he's called us to. Y'all, we want to see an awakening in our city. And what I need to tell you is God wants that. Think, for example, about your one. We say this a lot if you're newer to Mercy. We say, who's that one person that's far from God but close to you? God's put that person in your life. Who's that one? You ever find yourself thinking, it's just, I don't really think they're going to, like, I don't really think they're ever going to come to faith. Like, I know, I know, God can do anything, but I don't really, I don't really think that's ever going to happen. Right there, right there in that moment, 
And you know, I've been there plenty of times. Right there in that moment is a colossal misunderstanding of God's power and God's love. That person needs Christ. And listen, God wants them, and God is with you as you go to share that gospel hope with them. And listen, he's just calling you to go down the mountain, and he's going to do the rest. So Barak, it says, came down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. This is my favorite space in this story because it's battle time. They are riding, I mean, they're running, actually, down the mountain. They hit the go button. Ain't no turning back. Overwhelming odds. They are outmanned. They are way outgunned. And there's 10,000 Israelites just following a faithful general into battle. God, I believe, loves this moment. Listen, it's the moment after they obey, but before they see God work. You know that moment? Because that's faith. That's the faith moment. You have stepped out. Some of y'all are in this moment right now. You've stepped out. You've chosen, I'm going to do what God calls me to do, whether it's I'm going to stand by what he's called me to do in terms of a Christian moral ethic, or whether it's I believe God's called me to this particular ministry. Maybe it's I've been sharing the gospel with this guy. Whatever it is, God's called me to this, but I haven't seen God deliver it yet. I'm right there in that space between that. Man, God loves that moment. In this moment, it's, <laughs> you got to think it's brought going, we out here? Like, we got about two minutes, <laughs> and either you're going to show up or we're going to show up in heaven, right? In the next two minutes, we're going to meet one way or the other. Now, I'm telling you, I want to tell you, by the way, if that's where you are, I want to tell you to press on, to keep running, because God is going to honor whatever that step is of obedience you're taking. Verse 15, look what happens. The Lord threw Sisera, all his charioteers, that's what you get called if you drive a chariot, and all his army into a panic before Barak's assault. Sisera left his chariot. He fled on foot. They started calling him Sissy Foot. They didn't, but I was testing some dad jokes out earlier. Anyways, the whole army of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a single man was left. What happened? We're going to get more detail in chapter 5. It's a cool thing about the way this is structured. But the way the Lord threw Sisera into a panic was he sent a huge rain. All right, and the rain flooded the river valley that was right in front of Sisera's army that had dried up. Listen, they were in the dry season at the time. But, Sisera, but then this rain comes, Sisera's chariots, these heavy iron chariots are charging. They all get stuck in this mud and they're rendered useless and that's why they have to flee. They didn't expect it in the dry season. You don't take muddy chariots, if you, excuse me, you don't take chariots into the mud if you know that mud's gonna be there. What happened? This was just a little, a little act of God. Just this one little thing. Watch this, y'all. Israel's most powerful enemy was literally stopped in their tracks. The iron chariots that were so daunting to Israel that for years and years they'd refused to deal with them because they knew there was no chance. God not only defeated those chariots, he made their apparent strength their greatest weakness. You catch that? That's how God works. He takes Israel's weakness right, that they are lightly armed, and he uses that as a strength to bring about victory. So God not only gives victory, but he chooses a manner of victory that allows Israel to see how weak and how vulnerable even the strongest enemy is when God is going before them. Y'all, I'm going to come back to that because this gets so good. We've got to keep going. Sissy foot runs away, verse 17, to the tent 
of Jael, the wife of Haber the Canaanite. So Jael went out to greet Sisera and said to him, come in, my Lord, come in with me, don't be afraid. So he went into her tent. She covered him with a blanket. He's tired. He said to her, please give me a little drink of water for I'm thirsty. And she opens a container of milk and gives him a drink, covers him back up. So then he says to her, listen, stand at the entrance to the tent. If a man comes and asks you, is there a man here? Say, no, because he knows there's a man coming. His name's Barak. He's got some business with Sisera. Now, next verse. Get ready for this. While he was sleeping from exhaustion, Heber's wife, Jael, took a tent peg, grabbed a hammer, and went silently to Sisera. She hammered the peg into his temple and drove it into the ground, and he died, which I appreciate the author adding that, as if we couldn't figure that much out, right? Now, the great irony here is that setting up and taking down tents was considered the work of a housewife, which means, the way one commentator said it, was the great Sisera was killed by, in effect, a common household appliance. So then Barak shows up, sees Sisera lying dead. You know what he says? Girl, you nailed it. No, he didn't say that. I just couldn't. I, I can't resist. Oh, man, they're good. Um, no, he said, what does he say? He says, you know what should, what should come to his mind and what should come to our mind? The reason this happens this way Verse 9, Deborah's words to him, right? You'll receive no honor on the road you're about to take because the Lord will sell Sisera to a woman. The great Sisera lying dead at the hands of an unsuspecting housewife. And then the last couple of verses in chapter 4 tell you that Israel gained strength. They gained the momentum from this victory all the way to defeat King Jabin. The cycle is completed. And once again, Israel is set free from their oppressors. What a story. Now listen, the great thing about this story is that the next chapter, chapter 5, is actually the commentary on chapter 4. Chapter 5 is Deborah's song, and it teaches us how to think about the story. So that's what I want to do with the rest of our time today. I want to look at chapter 5, and in doing so, kind of reflect on chapter 4. And I'm going to show you, this is the way we're going to, what we're going to call it, battle lessons from the great victory of Deborah, Barak, and Jael. See, it starts with just thinking about y'all. This is Deborah who writes this song. She's teaching Israel how to understand the events. Her leadership leads to the first truth that we have to consider. Think about this. She is the one who's writing what will be scripture for us to understand God's, the the other chapter four in God's word. So here's the first lesson I want you to, uh, I want us to consider. And that's simply that women have access to the same spiritual gifts men do. Now let me flesh this out for us. How could we look at the career of Deborah, the fact that she's not only leading, the fact that she's writing chapter five and not bring up women's leadership in the church. Deborah's just too awesome. And there are a few ways people read this story. And one, one is they kind of use a little verse in chapter five to say that they translate it, what I think is just way, way out the wrong way and say that Deborah stepped into leadership because no man would step into the role. So this wasn't the original plan, but sort of a last resort resort, because someone needed to judge. The problem with that is that the chapter doesn't say that. In fact, the author makes it very clear that Deborah was clearly called by God to be a dispute settler and a prophetess. Even if you read Barak as wavering in his faith, which I don't think that you need to, as I said earlier, still doesn't have anything to do with Deborah's role. She was placed there by God to lead 
period. And I pause on that, y'all, to emphasize something that I believe strongly, we believe as a church, Scripture clearly indicates in both its examples and in its teachings that women have access to the same spiritual giftings men do. I need to say that because sometimes the church, intentionally or even unintentionally, can communicate that the only role a woman has to play is that of a, a helper submitted to her husband. As if the rest of Scripture applies to men and the little bits in Ephesians 5, Proverbs 31, and Ruth are what's for the ladies. No, the danger in doing that would be to communicate that it's okay for women who are followers of Christ to be superficial, shallow people who should sit by and let men do all the important spiritual stuff. Look, every single passage in the Bible is just as true and as important for women as it is for men. Y'all, look at My wife is not a shallow woman, and we are not raising our daughters to be shallow either. When I talk about our kids' ministry raising up gospel warriors, you better believe I'm talking just as much about our daughters as I am about our sons. And I refuse to create a church or to lead a church that has any kind of superficiality when it comes to raising up women who follow the Lord. Women, God has gifted you with the full array of giftings he has to offer his church, and he expects you to use them. Now, you better believe, of course, that a part of that, a part of our role in that is training you for the role God will call some of you to of wife and mother. And we're going to celebrate that, and we're going to equip you for that posture of submission that he calls you to, and we'll celebrate it because the Bible celebrates it. And we're also going to do our best to try and equip you to use the gifts God has given you for ministry, whatever those gifts are, which is like reason 2050 that you need to be in community. Now, not in like superficial, hey, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Instagram, my coffee, right? Not that, but like the real where you know each other and you know each other well enough and you watch each other work well enough and you have enough trust with each other that you can be candid, you can affirm one another's giftings. Now, let me say this. There are clearly certain roles in the Bible that God does reserve for men. In the Old Testament, that role is priest, the person who stands before God on behalf of the people. In the New Testament, that role is called pastor or elder. We don't shrink away from that or try to hide that. We believe if God sets it up that way, that's right and good for us. That doesn't prohibit women from teaching at all. It means she's not to teach as one who has the authority of a pastor elder. In the New Testament, you see Priscilla tutoring Apollos, who is like one of the great pastors that's ever gets mentioned in Scripture. You see women serving as prophetesses and deacons. Uh, Tim Keller, by the way, if you're looking for a great like readable commentary to go along with our series. Tim Keller put a little book out called Judges for You, and it is super readable, and it'd be a great kind of read along as we're going through this. Anyways, he said in there, God forbids one kind of role in the church to women, just like he did in Israel. So we must not jump to forbidding all teaching and tasks to women. We shouldn't assert all sort of specific tasks that are off limits when the Bible just doesn't give those details. It's better to say that women can do everything that a man who's not an elder can do. Now, you might be feeling a little uncomfortable with that. You might be feeling a little tension with that. And if you do, listen, let's say it this way. The Bible is not supposed to adapt to the worldview of our culture, okay? Then that's often where Bible reading goes awry and where churches go awry, is they try to impose their cultural views of the day onto the Bible and make the Bible say it. But instead, what the Bible says, this is God's word, then we're supposed to take what it says and apply it to our day, whatever it might say. Listen, 
in present day, there are two cultures that get frustrated with what I just said. One is what you could call a more traditionalist view that will tend to view women as the less capable gender and will say they don't have access to certain giftings. But the other view, that will be more of a progressive view, will say there's no distinction between the genders whatsoever, and both views are going to be frustrated by what the Bible has to say. Because the Bible puts forward a vision of the genders that says they are equal in the eyes of God, but they are not equivalent. They're both created by God. They're both of equal value, yet created differently for different tasks, and that's a good thing. So to our women, let me say this. Do not shrink back from the calling God has on your life. We most certainly need more Deborahs who will speak and live God's truth courageously here in our day. Our daughters need role models, and our church needs you to use the giftings God has given you. That's good for our church. And I'll say that you can do that. The other thing I'll say is you can do that while honoring God's divine order, whether that's in your home or whether that's in our church. Deborah and Jael were both identified as wives. That's an indicator in Hebrew culture. They were submitted to the leadership of their husbands and submitted to the headship of her husband was a good thing, a celebrated thing that did not limit Deborah in her calling and in fulfilling that calling. And the same thing is true for submitting to what is male elders here in the church. If we're doing this right, it should not limit you to fulfill the calling God has for you, married or single women. All right, there's much more to look into, so let's go all the way now. We're all the way in verse 2 of chapter 5. Listen to this. When the leaders lead in Israel, when the people volunteer, blessed be the Lord. The Lord's going to be praised when this happened. Deborah's drawing out an important lesson to remember from this epic battle. It's really the one she's about to reinforce throughout the song. It's for the leaders of God's people. Here's the point. When leaders lead, when they step up and lead, God's people flourish. A huge theme in this song is Deborah looking back on the battle and basically doing a roll call of who stepped out in faith and who hung back. Verse 14, Ephraim came down. Benjamin came down. Verse 15, the princes of Issachar came down. Verse 18, Zebulun and Naphtali, they came down the mountain. But then verses 16 and 17, Reuben remained by the sheep pens. Gilead remained by their ships. Look, this is for all of us, but I just talk to the ladies. Let me talk to the men for a second because there's a message here you got to grapple with. We are in a moment where you cannot hang back by the ships. It's safe. It's safe to hang by the ships and back by the sheep pens. And listen to me, you can manipulate the moment to make it look like the spiritual thing to do is to hang back by the ships. Look at verse 16. Why did you sit among the sheep pens? She's talking to Reuben. Listening to the playing of pipes for the flocks. There was great searching of heart among the clans of Reuben. See what she's saying? Reuben's leaders were searching their hearts. God had already called them. It goes all the way back to what we said. Hasn't the Lord said, go bring the 10,000? God had called them and Reuben's response to the calling of God, to the command of God was, I'll pray about it. Woo, we'll pray about it? That is not spiritual maturity. That is self-preservation wrapped in spiritual clothing. Look, um, one, of our, uh, one of our friends, Jessica Urbanic, she was talking with Courtney the other day. Brilliant um, insight on this whole idea of faith. Y'all ever seen the illustration of the, the idea is that there's a chair, right? And the chair represents you trusting God. So the chair is trusting God for your salvation, trusting God for your way of life. And the way that you know, have faith, you, know you have faith is that you rest 
your body on the weight of the chair. That's how you know that you're trusting the chair is because you're sitting in it. And, here's, and that represents your relationship with God. You know, you're trusting God, you're sitting down. In it. She, said, she said, a lot of Christians are squatting over the chair, which I thought was really awkward and funny and incredibly insightful, which means it, you're able to make yourself, because you know enough about Christianese, right, the language that Christians use with each other, you know enough of that language, you know enough how to talk so that you can look like you are depending on the Lord while you're still actually standing in your own strength. That's what's happening with Reuben here. Listen, one of my greatest concerns for us, Mercy Church, is not that our church is filled with bad people who do bad things. My, church, my concern is that our church is filled with timid people who do nothing. And I need to tell you something. A pastor told our staff this week, church is not a picnic. Church is not a show. Church is not a social club. Church is a battalion. We are at war against an enemy who wants us to lose the battle for people's souls. The battle is real. It is urgent. Listen, 1 Peter tells me that there is an enemy. His name is the devil. And he is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's actively doing that. And men, if you don't step out and lead, that someone might be your wife. That someone might be your kids. That someone might be your brother or sister in your community group. I promise he's going to attack. I have, I've led this church. I've been in ministry long enough to know he is going to attack. He's coming after me. He's coming after your leaders. He's coming after your family. You got to get off the dadgum couch, get out from behind the screen, and you got to come down the mountain with us. There's this little small army we call Mercy Church, a few hundred strong. We're trying to come down a mountain against an enemy who has a stronghold over this whole city who's way more powerful than we are, and you need to get in this battle. Last thing I'll say on this point is standing on the sideline in God's kingdom, that's not a neutral position. Verse 23, curse Miraz, says the angel of the Lord. Bitterly curse her inhabitants, for they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord with the warriors. Miraz didn't do anything bad. They just hung out by the sheep pens. That's not necessarily evil, is it? Listen, I tell you all the time, Christianity is not a spectator sport. And usually I'm telling you about the rewards in your own soul, in your own relationship with God, that you will get when you step out and you serve the Lord, when you obey the Lord. There is deep reward. There's deep reward for you when you're serving others, whether it's here in our church, whether it's in our community, when you're serving others, there's great reward because you're obeying God. And in obedience to God, there's this fullness of joy. That is true. But this passage says that spectators in God's kingdom, spectators are going to be cursed, especially those spectating when the battle is raging. So let me tell you, there is no such thing as a Christian spectator. The idea that you can be okay with God without obeying him, listen, that, that's a lie that has snuck in under the veil of our gospel-centered theology. Because our gospel-centered theology is very good and right. I believe you are saved by faith alone, through grace alone. But James is going to tell us faith without works, without evidences of faith, is not faith. It's dead. So let me say it this way. There are no Christian spectators. There are only followers and rebels. There are no spectators. That's a reality you've got to grapple with the Lord with. And what Courtney and I tell our kids, there's a couple of ways you can be disobedient. 
One is when you do what's wrong, of course. But the other is when you find yourself in a situation and you fail to do what's right. When you sit by and watch when you should have acted. Jesus didn't say, come and watch. He said, come and follow. We're in a battle right now. Just transparent pastor to you where Mercy Church is right now. I've seen more spiritual warfare in our church in the past three weeks than I've seen in one single time period since we launched our church three years ago. Missionaries in trouble, staff families suffering loss, conflicts, marriages in trouble. Not surprising is what I've realized as I step back and look at it. We're about to open a location that's going to allow us to reach more people with the gospel. Of course, the enemy wants us to fail. You know, you got to get in the battle. you gotta, you got to come run down the mountain. Some of you need to reach out to one of our pastors today and just be like, just put me in the battle. I'm running. Let's go. Which actually leads me right to point three. If you felt any form of discouragement right there, this is the great, um, the great balm, if you will, of the gospel. Look at point three. God uses willing, faithful people. That's who he uses. I told you last week, the running theme of the book of Judges, he's going to use unlikely, unqualified people in one sense to win the victory. Why? So that he gets the glory. I told you, um, when you look at the New Testament, there's only one perfect person in it. And y'all all got to participate. We said, who's that? Jesus, right? Easy Sunday morning answer. There's a reason he's the only perfect person, so that God can remind us that he uses fallible, messed up people. Look, first it's a female judge who steps out in faith, believing that God is going to supply an army that doesn't exist. When she, all she says is, Deborah says, Barak, go. Hasn't the Lord said? And that's the faith that she's going on. Then it's Barak, the guy she entrusts to lead the army. Nothing mentioned especially impressive about him, but the important thing is he shows up. That's what he does, right? He shows up. His only thing he does is he starts running, right? He starts running, and that's all God asks of him. And then there's Jael. Deborah calls her most blessed among women. Verse 26, Deborah actually puts her into the song, right? And so the, the beat of the song starts to change to da-na-na-na-na-na, because it's hammer time when Jael gets up there, right? told you, I just, it's just rolling today. I didn't think about that. A 10-year-old came up to me after the last service and told me I should put that in. It's like, what, what is happening? So anyways, verse 26. Verse 26. She reached for a tent peg, her right hand, for a workman's hammer. Then she hammered Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Whatever it is, what are her credentials though? Nothing. She was faithful and willing. And when the moment came, she didn't wait on Barak. She took action for the glory of God with the tools available to her. This is how God works in all of Scripture. Think about Mary, Jesus' mom. This young virgin, the angel comes down, right? You're about to have God's baby. He will be God. That's a lot of news to get. You got some questions, right, when that comes. Well, what does she say? I am the Lord's servant. Be it to me according to your word. Faithful and willing. That's all the Lord ever asked for. Listen, I'm just cut. I'm cutting straight to the bottom line. The next opportunity God puts in front of you that requires a sacrificial leap of faith. Take it. Take it. Don't hang by the ships trying to preserve your false sense of control. Come run down the mountain. Listen, there's a, there's a last point here that I want to I close us on that might surprise you. It's a little bit of a left turn at the end of the at the end of Deborah's song. Because up to this point, it's been talking about how the Lord delivers, how the Lord delivers. And then what she does is she goes and she looks into Sisera's family. 
And she starts making a comment about Sisera's mom and what's happening there. It's a really interesting thing. Uh, let, me, let me read you the, what she says and then tell you this last point. See, what's happening is she says Sisera's mom is looking out the window wondering why Sisera's not home yet. And a couple of her princesses around her say, oh, they're just dividing the spoil, a girl or two for each warrior, which, by the way, means that the Canaanites were expecting and they were celebrating that their men would be raping the women of the other nation. And so Deborah villainizes these women in the song just so that she can say, not today. Not today. Today, justice was served. And we all love her closing line. Lord, may all your enemies perish as Sisera did. But may those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its strength. And here's the last point for today. God will bring about justice for all people. He will. That's the promise from Scripture to you. Because listen to me. We all love this line. We all pray this sometimes. Right? May your enemies perish. But the reality is, not every evil gets the justice it deserves in this life, does it? There are a lot of predators who will not get the justice they deserve in this life. But listen, while that's true in this life, that's not true for eternity. This story, like all stories in Scripture, is designed to give us a glimpse of how God is going to bring justice for all people. Like Deborah and like Jael, Jesus is going to be the unexpected Savior who takes the enemy by surprise. And that Savior guarantees eternity. Eternity for those who follow him. And Revelation 21 tells me that it is a place where there's no more mourning, no more tears, no more pain. There is complete joy, complete peace in the presence of God. And he promises in that verse in Revelation 21, he promises in Romans 12 that he will serve justice on all wrongs that have ever been done. And if I believe that, listen, listen, if I believe that he will serve justice, that means I don't have to. And that's where power, the power of the gospel starts to, starts to come true. Listen, the promise of God to Christians is that every wrong ever done against me will either be paid for on the cross or in hell. God will get justice. That's his burden, which means it doesn't have to be yours. Because if you carry it around, if I carry it around, I'll always be bitter. Because vengeance, can it never works. It never satisfies your soul. It was Dr. King who famously said, hate can never drive out hate, right? Only love can do that. In Christ, I can release my vengeance. And then watch this. Oh, watch this, church. See, what happens in the gospel is that Jesus takes the pegs of justice owed for my sin and he nails them into his own hands and into his own feet. The, the justice that is, in a sense, the justice that I deserved, instead, he takes that penalty and justice is served on him instead of on me. And I get forgiveness. I just get the benefits of the justice. I don't have to pay it. Y'all, that is what the Bible calls grace. 
That's what the Bible calls mercy. And now we, church, listen, when you lean into that, when you, this is why we tell you wake up each morning, spend time with the Lord. Because when you lean into the pegs of justice were meant for you, were given to him, well, now you can start to forgive. Because now you have experienced again afresh today. You have remembered today. So we sing songs about our forgiveness, about our deliverance, because now you can experience that deliverance again afresh today and have the power to be set free from vengeance. You can forgive and you can even be forgiven. There is great power available to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is how it starts to, just starts to apply in everyday life. You start to live and walk in what God has done for you. Be amazed at how he'll use that to change your life and the lives of others around you.